Turn to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49, we're going to be working through the entire uh, passage. However, you know, I'm going to give special attention to probably the first half of it. Um, we cannot exhaustively go through, otherwise we may be in the book of Isaiah forever. Um, and it's been uh, enlightening for me. But when we get to the book of Isaiah, I want you to think about these three things. Um, first of which is that here's what a prophet does in the Old Testament. So regardless of where you are in the New Testament or the Old Testament, when, when you get to a prophet in the Old Testament, prophets do these three things. This is from a, a man named Graham Goldworthy. He's a, a professor uh, of um, Old Testament. He says this, The first is that, is that a prophet identifies the specific ways that Israel or Judah has broken the covenant. So a prophet identifies the ways that that nation has broken the covenant uh, through you know, injustice and oppression, through insincere worship, through a syncretistic mixing of pagan gods with the one true God. And so the, the prophet comes and he identifies what the problem is. Secondly, a prophet does this. They pronounce the judgment of God against the unfaithfulness to the covenant. Now, this, this judgment that, that God brings about because of the unfaithfulness to the covenant, it may be short-term, it may be long-term. And there's different layers of, of terms of judgment that we see. We see that sometimes the judgment is meant for just a time. It could be an exile. It could be uh, the Babylonian exile. It could be the Assyrian exile. But then thirdly, a prophet does this. A prophet, they speak the message of comfort to the faithful, that God will yet save them completely, finally, and gloriously. Now, that's also a layered approach as well, because what we find is that oftentimes when the prophet is giving his, his message, like in the book of Isaiah, he is prophesying to a people who will at one point be in exile in Babylon. And through the last few chapters we've read about, he is going to raise up a Persian king named Cyrus. He actually names him by name. And that Cyrus, this foreign king, would actually come and liberate the captives out of Babylonian captivity and send them back to Jerusalem, back to the promised land. But there's also this other layering that's going on that we see that there's this ultimate and this final salvation from an exile of sin and death that the prophet foretells. And what he's saying is that someday in the future, there will be one who will come, and we call that one the Messiah, the promised one, or the Christ in the New Testament, the anointed one. And he will come and he will bring with him uh, an eternal peace, an everlasting kingdom. And then Isaiah calls him the Prince of Peace. Um, that's where we are in the book of Isaiah chapter 49. So as we think about Isaiah 49, we are in this passage that is known as a, one of the servant songs. Now, many of us are aware of Isaiah 53, and we read that oftentimes at Easter, uh, Resurrection Sunday and Good Friday, about the suffering servant. But there are actually four passages within the book of Isaiah that detail the suffering servant, or we would describe them as the servant passages in Isaiah, talking about this coming kingdom, this coming king who would establish an eternal kingdom. And we read about it in Isaiah 42, here in Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6, Isaiah 50, 4 through 7, and then again in Isaiah 53, most of it. But that's where we are. So we're going to talk about the idea of Jesus being the servant, the servant that is foretold in the book of Isaiah, but there's a lot. So... Uh, because it's a lot, I'm going to keep you seated as we read all of Isaiah chapter 49. So hear the word of the Lord. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention to you, attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. 
He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you a, as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and this Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people." to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. All bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west. And these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see, they all gather, they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them on, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hands to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. And they shall bring you your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall, be, shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children." I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior, as your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. May God add his reading to the blessing of his word. There's a lot there. There's a significant amount there as we look. But I want us to see it here, and I want to sum it up in these three words. We, we see there's this idea of servant, 
there's an idea of Savior and there's an idea of sustainer in the midst of this passage that we'll look at today. In the first of which we see this in Isaiah chapter 49. It says in verse 3, And he said to me, You are my servant. In verse 6, it says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant? You see, in the midst of Isaiah 49, I think that Isaiah is looking way into the future there when he says, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. I think that's an allusion to Luke chapter 2 when we, when we think about Jesus and, and his, his, um, his father would name him Jesus. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant. And again, you know, we, we read it. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant in verse 6? And so there's this idea of Jesus, and it's this. It's that Jesus is the servant. God calls his servant to the people of God. Now, when we think about Jesus, um, there, there's a couple things to think about in terms of who he is and what he actually did. Let me just read for you a couple of these from the New Testament. In John chapter 5, verse 43, it says this, Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive him. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I come in my Father's name, I am an ambassador from heaven, and I am the one who has come, and I am here to do my Father's will. He's a servant of the Most High King. We read about it also in John chapter 8. He says, he's speaking to the Pharisees here, and they're talking about, well, whose offspring are you? Are you the offspring of Abraham or Moses, or who do you follow? He says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Now again, he says, I came not of my own accord, but rather Jesus comes as the servant of God, as the called servant of God to do the Father's will. In John chapter 13, we have really the epitome of service when we think about the washing of the disciples' feet. During supper, um, well... I'll just start it in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, because Peter can't be quiet, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Now, again, Jesus washes the disciples' feet as a symbol 
So the question becomes, you know, as, 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 as Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, follow me as I follow the example of Christ. Well, what is the example of Christ to us? The example of Christ to us and even the prophecy in Isaiah is this, is that Jesus is called by God to be a servant. To serve. Now, as I look at that, I'm in awe at a, at a myriad of places here. First of all, thinking that Jesus, the God of the universe, and this is what Philippians 2 is about. When, when God shed his glory and came, and, and he calls us to, to be servants of one another. He calls us to love one another. And the difficulty right here, and this is, you know, as God calls his servant Jesus, the application point for us is, what do we serve? Who do we serve? You know, for, quite frankly, who are you serving today? And is your master good? Is what you are serving worthy of your service? Is what you are serving something that will last forever? Is what you are serving something that will be with you eternally? The question arises, what do you serve? Now, when I think about serving, um, and I think about you know, children and they talk about what they want to be, like there's no, no small child that when I ask them what they want to be when they grow up, they, nobody says, I really want to be a servant. Like I long to serve and to help other people in the midst of service to another. Rather, you know, you hear children saying like, quite frankly, I want to be like Captain America, right? Like I, I want to be, you know, the, the hero. I want to be in charge. I want, to, I want to lead. I don't want to serve. I want to be in charge of all things. And yet our Savior washes the feet of the disciples our Savior lays aside His glory in order to save us. Our Savior does what His Father tells Him to do. Now, when I think about that, that that's, a, that's a hard thing because I think sometimes that my spiritual gift is to be served. Anybody else have that gift too? You know, like, like just serve me. You know, like, I, I just, I want you to exhibit and to demonstrate the gifts that the Lord has given you by helping me, and I'm helping you by allowing you to serve me. I'm just kidding, by the way, okay? You know, nobody has the gift of being served. But what I find within my heart is that there's this yearning to s- serve myself rather than to serve another. For example, um, I love it when my wife um, will say, you're not going to like me asking you this question, which is, by the way, it's a terrible you know, way to introduce a question. It almost always has to do with like weeding the yard or doing some sort of chore around the house. And, and, and pretty much I automatically begin to brace myself and, and I begin to you know, scurry through the Rolodex of excuses I might have in my head as to why or why not I cannot do what she's asking me to do. And part of that is because I am hardwired to be self-serving, not to serve one another or to serve others. And the question becomes, why is that within my heart? Do I, do I push off those who ask me to serve or, or even push off wanting to serve others rather than just wanting to serve myself? And the answer to that is, you know, it's sin. You know, it's selfishness. There's this yearning to be you know, in charge, there's this yearning to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, and I don't want anyone to interrupt my pursuit of my own selfish desires. Matter of fact, if somebody gets in the way of my own selfish desires, 
They become an impediment to me. And that's wrong. And when I look at the, the Jesus who is called to serve, and I look at Jesus, the God of the universe, who would stoop and actually wash the disciples' feet, but I also think about this Jesus who not only lived a perfect life, but then he died a death that we could not die. So that brings me to my second point. So what is Yahweh, you know, what is Yahweh in this passage doing with his servant? Well, Notice what it says in, 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 very, in the first verse. It says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention to you peoples from afar. There, there's this sense in which you know, God is calling all of creation to himself. And he says this in verse 8. He says, in, the, in, the, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as covenant, as a covenant to the people. Now that's, that's bizarre language for us. Because he's actually saying, I will give you as a covenant. He's not saying, I will make a covenant with you, a promise or some contract with you, but rather you will be the very nature of the covenant that I will establish with my people. There's this sense in which in Isaiah 42, and again in Isaiah 43, and Isaiah 48, verses 6 and 7, I'll just read um, Isaiah 48, 6 and 7. This is what, this is from last week. You have heard, you have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things you have not known. They are created now, not long ago, before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. Essentially, he's saying, I am doing a new thing. Now, in the Old Testament, what we find is that the Old Testament you know, is, is arranged around you know, Genesis, where we see creation and fall in Genesis 3. And then through the entire time, we see God working his way through a covenant with his people, whether it's you know, through Noah, and then we see through Abraham, and then we see through Moses, and then we see David. And there's this unfolding of revelation. So the Old Testament Jews, the people in Isaiah's day, are looking to the law, and they're saying, if we just follow the law, then we will be saved. If we follow close to you, then we'll be fine. And what God is saying is, no, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to bring a new covenant. And everything in the Old Testament, every article of clothing that the high priest wore, every article of furnishing that was in the temple, all of that is prefiguring or foreshadowing this Messiah. I'm doing a new thing. And I will name this new thing. He will be a person, not a place or a thing. We read this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. He says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. There's this, this new covenant, this new thing that happens when Jesus shows up. Because when Jesus shows up, we read this back in Isaiah chapter 14. You know, um, we read that he will be a covenant to us, a covenant to the people, to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, and this is really what he's calling, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. Now, what is the darkness that that Isaiah and then Jesus is referring to, that darkness is the darkness of sin, the darkness of us, our own selfishness. You know, the sin, the, the flesh, the devil, and the world calling us out of the darkness and calling us into the light. Jesus actually says, 
I am the light of the world. And what is he the light of the world for? He's the light of the world because he reveals sin and he actually takes us out of the sinfulness of our own self and he calls us to be a servant, a servant of God. That's what Jesus does when he says, I'm making all things new. I'm recreating. Now, when we look at this, some of these things should happen. When, when, when God calls us out of darkness, He will feed us along the ways. On bare heights shall be their pasture. Essentially, you know, this is almost Psalm 23 type of language right here. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he, he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road. And, and so in the midst of this, in the midst of coming and believing in Jesus, in the midst of believing the gospel message, and, and really the gospel message is believing and trusting in Jesus, that he is my substitute, that he is my savior, that he is my prophet, priest, and king. And that when he dies on the cross, all of my sins are substituted to him and the righteous wrath of God befalls my sin upon the cross. And his righteousness is then credited to my account so that I become justified, which means to be declared righteous by a holy father. That I am then starting the process of sanctification. I am adopted into the family of God. This is what the gospel is. This is the good news. From an enemy of God to a child of God. I mean, that's what happens to us in terms of who we are. From an enemy to a child. And when we believe that, when we believe and trust in Jesus, then we can have peace in the midst of knowing that we are sinners. You know, um, I love doing baptisms, and I love doing baptisms of, of children. One of the things I didn't say, um, in part because Annabelle was being a little fussy, uh, was this. Is, uh, you know, Allie, what a, what a sweet, sweet baby. But she's a stinkweed born in sin. And Annabelle and Jackson are the same way. And they need to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They need to trust and believe in a Savior. And so when we baptize a child, we look forward to the day and we say, this child is a sinner that desperately needs the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and He is our Savior. So we look forward to the day when, when Allie will stand up here and declare her affirmation of the vows of membership, declaring that she is a sinner in need of a Savior. And that she will trust and believe in no one else for her salvation except for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's what the Lord God is doing. You know, in, in the midst of sending his Savior, calling his servant, sending him as the Savior of the world, we also think about this, is that the Savior not only saves us, but then he sends the sustainer to us in a moment of doubt and unbelief. There is a portion of Isaiah 49 at the very beginning that should be balm to your soul and should comfort you greatly. In verse 3 it says, And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with God. There's this difficulty there because sometimes, and I don't know about you guys, but I'm almost positive this is the case. If you are a mother or a father or a grandparent or you're, you're a child working in school or if you have a job, if you have any relationship, do you ever feel like your labor is in vain? That everything that you're doing right now 
is for nothing. You feel like you are the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes and you are doing nothing but chasing after the wind. I know that there are uh, parents who have seen children who have strayed from the faith and they think about this and they go, Lord, did everything that I pour into that child, is it all for naught? Am I, is it all in vain? I've heard um, pastors um, this week, even in the midst of um, you know, COVID and everything else that's going on, I have a, I'm, on a, I'm on a listserv among other PCA pastors, um, and one of the guys was talking about some of the difficulties they, they've had in their church and just and essentially, it was almost their cry of their heart saying, I just feel like I'm, sometimes I just feel like I'm, I'm spinning my wheels. You ever feel like you're, you're stuck in the mud and your wheels are just spinning and you can't get out and you can't get out and you can't get out and the, and the harder you spin, you know, you, and then you get out to like fix it and all of a sudden you're like, hey, give it a little gas and you just get mud in your face. You ever felt like that? The, uh, the pastors, uh, the listserv that I was, um, that I'm a part of in, in the PCA, they were talking about this, and, and let me just read a couple of these. Um, one pastor said um, he had people, um, people who were leaving his church. They, they sent him this note. It's always nice to get a note like this. Um, we are leaving the church because you asked us to wear a mask for 15 minutes on Sunday. That's what one pastor got. He goes, man, what am I doing? Another person wrote this. This is a group of pastors. Not, oh, thank goodness it's not the one pastor, right? This is a group of pastors. Another pastor said this, y'all are the most, y'all, so you know they're from the South. Y'all are the most doctrinally sound, gospel-centered church in the city. But I'm not sure you are on board with me politically. So I'm leaving your church. Not, let's have a conversation about what, what you believe and what you said. Like, you're the most gospel-centered church in the city, but I'm leaving because my political ideologies and what I believe are not on board. Do not leave our church. Well, first of all, you're not going to hear anything political from me, all right? But by the way, Jesus should probably offend you a little bit. Jesus should stretch you with regard to what you believe. And by the way, you know, many of you are very excited about Glenn Youngkin. And, and like, you know, great, but his name's not Jesus. His name's not Jesus. And we want him to pursue Christ and to lead in righteousness, right? We don't put our trust in horses or men. We put our hope in a Savior, in a Messiah, you know? Now, if somebody writes me a note and says, I'm leaving because you said that, I'm showing up at your door. Or, or we're going to have some, we're going to have a conversation, okay? Now, another pastor said this, I couldn't believe it. Another guy said, I'm leaving because you don't support the Second Amendment. The pastor said, which I do, but I've never spoken about it from the pulpit. He goes, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to even say from the pulpit anymore. Another one said this, I'm leaving because I don't like you. The pastor responded, shoot, I don't like me either. So at least we're on the same page on that one, you know. Another one said this, a friend who's a pastor told me that a family left their church because they visited the local megachurch and there was an area where they had a vending machine with king-size candy bars for the kids all for free. The guy said, free king-size candy bars? How can we possibly pass that up? Isn't that crazy? I mean, it, a candy bar. They're saying, I mean, where is the theological sensibility? Where is the sense of community? Where is the sense of covenant? And they're like, free candy. Free candy. It's incredible. 
It's incredible. So, so these pastors are writing and they're going, but am I just spinning my wheels? Is my labor in vain? What am I doing? You know, sometimes um, in the midst of this, we feel that way. And sometimes the Lord in his providence allows us to see fruit that will, will happen after a long period of time. Like we will work and work and work, and sometimes we'll actually see fruit. I remember a story in the, in the ninth, early 19th century where a pastor was called to be a guest preacher at a small country church. But in the midst of that small country church, there was a huge snowstorm. And so he rode his horse out to the, to the church, and he said, but I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to deliver a sermon. And so he showed up, and he began to deliver the sermon, and he delivered the sermon to one person. One person. And he was a young pastor. He said, I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to preach. And so he preached a sermon. He preached as he would to anybody, to, to you know, thousands of people. And then he prayed. And then when he looked up from prayer, the guy was gone. Didn't he stick around? The one guy did not even stick around. And the pastor was like, oh, well, time to go. You know, and so he got on his horse and, and left. 30 years later, you know, this elderly pastor is, is coming in and he's preaching at a, at a church in a city. And he's greeted by the pastor of the church. And he says, I've always wanted to meet you. He said, do you remember preaching a sermon to one person in a snowstorm? And he goes, yes, but that guy left. He goes, I was that guy. He goes, well, why'd you leave? He goes, I had to leave because I had obligations with my family to get back and, and feed. But I want you to know that the gospel took root in my life. And I gave myself to Jesus that day. And I now pastor a church. And I have seen many, many people come to faith in Christ. And so there's this sense in which gospel fruit deferred was just joy to his soul, to this old pastor who said, man, I'm so glad I preached the gospel to that one person in a snowstorm. But there's other times where we're not given deferred fruit. We just don't know if it'll ever take root. The call to being a servant of Christ is to be faithful, and you don't know what the end result will be. There's a story that Eric Alexander, a a Scottish pastor, describes And he said one of the most godly men he had ever met uh, wanted to be a missionary. And he he became a missionary for 20 years in Morocco. This is, you know, back in the probably turn of the century, turn of the the 1900s, right? He went to Morocco for 20 years. And he saw six people come to faith after 20 years. And three of those people who he saw come to faith, committed suicide because going from being a Muslim to being a Christian in Morocco. And so he came back to to England and he was broken to think of 20 years spent. And then he said, and Eric Alexander was speaking to him, he said, "So, so what gives you hope? And he goes, Isaiah chapter 49. Because in Isaiah chapter 49, it says this. It says, I have labored in vain. And He said, I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with God. Now, now let me describe recompense. Let me read it for you in a couple different versions. I have said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. Or in the NIV, it actually says this. I, I love this. I think it sounds a little bit better. It says, but I said, I have labored to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. Now think about Isaiah chapter 49, verse four. 
What it's saying there is it's saying the servant of the Lord of Israel. Now, this is the prophet speaking, but I think this is also talking about the Messiah who thinks this way. There are times, even on the, on the cross, when, when Jesus says, you know, Lord, if you will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. To know that our Savior understands us when we feel our labor is in vain. Like Jesus actually comes close to us and sustains us. He said, that missionary to Morocco for 20 years said, this is the hope that I have. The hope is that I will be with the Lord and that his, my due, what, yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. Or we could say, my reward is God. Through Christ. It's hard. You know, life in this fallen world is difficult. Um, And there is this sense in which we we long to be with our Savior. We, um, I was talking to, you know, somebody out in the narthex and they were talking about an upcoming surgery. And and he said, "The, the worst thing that could happen is if I die. I say, yeah, but if you die, you win. If you die, you win. I say, because you get to be with Jesus, and you don't have to be in the midst of this turbulent, you know, world anymore. And he said, that's right. I win. You know, the, the, the beauty is that our recompense, our reward is with our God. And we must trust that the one that we serve is good, will do good, and will always Keep his promises. So brothers and sisters, let me just close with this. As you think about what you're doing, how you are serving the God of the universe, um, every time you share the gospel, every time you give you know, help and compassion to someone who needs it, every time you do it in the name of Jesus, your labor is not in vain. He actually says this, because um, uh, the people, the people say in verse fourteen, "The Lord has forsaken me. My God, my Lord has for- forgotten me." And in verse fifteen, he says, "Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me." When we think about who God is, when we think about the the salvation that we have, we think about verse 26, that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Brothers and sisters, who do you serve and who will sustain you? Would you pray with me? Father, in the midst of feeling hopeless at times, Father, I pray, Lord, that the words of Scripture would be balm to our souls. Father, in the midst of feeling as if we are spinning our wheels. Father, I pray that we would run to your word and find hope. And Father, I pray that Jesus would comfort us, that his mercy and grace would pour forth from heaven and that we would know that we are forgiven and loved and never forgotten, never left alone. Father, help us. Increase our faith. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.